One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. BBC World Service, this is The Real Story with me, Rithula Shah. The International Criminal Court, designed to prosecute and bring justice to those responsible for the worst crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes. A court of last resort with potentially global jurisdiction. But more than 20 years after it was established and 16 years since the prosecutor started work, the ICC has spent some $1.7 billion and has only convicted three people for so-called core crimes. In the past, the ICC's faced criticism for focusing too much on African states. And although a mass walkout of African nations didn't materialise, Burundi and the Philippines have recently left. The United States signed the Rome Statute, but then never joined the court. And less than a month ago, the Trump administration slapped sanctions on court officials after the prosecutor began examining US actions in Afghanistan. In a statement to the press, the US National Security Advisor John Bolton said the ICC is already dead. We will not cooperate with the ICC. We will provide no assistance to the ICC. And we certainly will not join the ICC. We will let the ICC die on its own. After all, for all intents and purposes, the ICC is already dead to us. But there's praise too. Malaysia's joined up and the second prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda, has won plaudits for broadening the horizons of her office by also looking into the UK's actions in Iraq, the treatment of the Rohingya and even the situation in Palestine. But progress has been slow and the court itself is under strain, with judges fighting one another. So is the ICC still evolving in the face of waning support for multilateral institutions? Or has it failed in its own terms to address impunity? And is it now time to give up on an ambitious project that's failed? The ICC, that's this week's topic on The Real Story. In my panel to discuss all that and rather more, I imagine, Dapo Akande is a professor of public international law at the University of Oxford. He's here with me in London. John Bellinger is an international lawyer who served as a legal advisor to the State Department during the Bush administration. He's currently a fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations. He joins us from our Washington studio. And Meg de Guzman is a professor of law at the Temple Law School in the US. She served as a legal advisor to the Senegal delegation at the Rome conference where the ICC was created and she's in Philadelphia. Welcome to you all. May I ask each of you briefly to tell me whether you think the ICC is in trouble? John Bellinger. Hi, Riddle. It's certainly in trouble. I don't think it's uh, time to actually declare it dead, but it has got a lot of trouble and has not borne up to the expectations of its creators back in 2002. Meg de Guzman. You know, I don't think I would agree that it's in trouble. I think it's facing some significant legitimacy challenges, but I think they're challenges that were to be expected, and particularly in this climate of anti-globalism. I don't think it should surprise anyone that the ICC is having some uh, backlash at this time. Dapo Akande. I think the court hasn't quite lived up to the expectations that the founders had 20 years ago. I think it is going through some difficult times at this point in time, and it's got challenges from different directions. So before we get into the specifics of those challenges, those criticisms, let's just think a little bit about what the court was set up to do. Is there even agreement on that, Dapo Kande? Well, if you look at the founding document of the court, so that's the statute that creates the, the International Criminal Court, it's set up to 
to prosecute the perpetrators of the most serious crimes of concern to the international community. So it's to prosecute those who commit genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity and, and the crime of aggression. And I think in that regard, there's, there's agreement. Um, it's set up to be a court that has potentially universal jurisdiction. In other words, it's not just for one particular country, one particular state. Any state can become a party to the statute of the court and the court could um, either by action of the UN Security Council or on the basis of states joining the court, the court could potentially investigate these crimes in any country around the world. John Bellinger, from the moment of its inception, the United States had problems with the court, with its remit. What were those concerns? Well, those concerns probably go back even farther than the time of its inception. The U.S. has had a roller coaster relationship with the ICC, originally supporting the concept of an international criminal court back in the 1990s. The Clinton administration actively negotiated the treaty that created it but didn't like the treaty that came out at the end in 1998, the Rome Statute. So the United States actually voted against the Rome Statute. President Clinton then signed the statute but said that he wouldn't send it to the Senate because it was flawed. The Bush administration famously withdrew the signature of the United States because uh, the United States was concerned about the court. And those concerns have been basically a single concern that because the U.S., because of its global responsibilities, because it perhaps more than any country in the world really does have troops engaged in peacekeeping or security missions all around the world, might get accused by a unfettered prosecutor who is not really controlled by anyone else, including the Security Council, would in a politicized fashion come against the United States. And so that that was the original concern as to why the U.S. voted against the Rome Statute and it has been the concern ever since. Meg de Guzman, a powerful opponent from the off, even now 123 countries have ratified that Rome Statute, sort of effectively signed up. But how many would you say are genuinely on board? I think most of those countries are genuinely on board. And, you know, even in Africa, where there's been a significant issue with perceptions of unequal prosecutions, the statements that states make tend to be generally supportive of the court. So I think the court still enjoys a lot of support. I'd love to go back briefly to the question you asked Dapo about expectations of what the court would do. And I think, of course, Dapo is right that the expectation was that it would work to end impunity for the most serious crimes of concern to the international community. But I think that there was little agreement about how those crimes would be identified. What exactly are the most serious crimes? Are they the ones that affect the greatest number of victims? Are they perhaps crimes committed by powerful governments, even if they don't have the same kind of numeric impact on victims? So I think there was a lot of ambiguity built into the ICC's mission that hasn't been resolved and that is contributing to some of the challenges it faces now. Well, one of the most obvious criticisms of the court right now is the lack of convictions, part of which is explained by the number of cases which have started but then fallen apart. How important is that, Dapo Akande, in in assessing the court? Is it even fair, a fair way to assess? Because after all, a good court should convict some people and let other people go. 
I think that's absolutely right to remember that acquittals are not in and of themselves a sign of of failure of a court. In fact, if you had a court that had a 100% success rate in convicting people, we probably would and probably should be very worried about that that court. However, um, in the case of the ICC, it's not so much, I think, the percentages on their own. It's the percentages in combination with the absolute number. So the absolute number of convictions as it stands now, as you said earlier, three. So that's a very low number in relation to a court that has been operating now for nearly 20 years. And then the percentage is also really low. You know, this is the court has had a number of cases that have collapsed. In other words, where the court has actually issued arrest warrants, where it's put people on trial And then for one reason or another, it's not been able to secure a conviction. So it's worrying that the court has put on so many cases, but has not been able to get a significant number over the line. John Bellinger, how much difference would some or greater support, some support from the United States have made, do you think, to the way in which the ICC is viewed? I don't think it would be too much. It's unfortunate when the United States is not uh, behind any major multilateral effort. So when the United States distances itself from UN bodies like the Human Rights Council or from a major treaty like the uh, Law of the Sea Convention to which almost every country is a party – That's unfortunate and a problem because the U.S. is not demonstrating the leadership on the international stage that it normally asserts. But I think the the absence of the United States in the International Criminal Court in the Rome Statute, while it's unfortunate – I don't think is the cause, any significant cause of the problems of the court that we've just discussed. So, well, let's talk about a specific example, perhaps the one that brought the court's work to wide international attention, if not notoriety, was Kenya. Now, in 2011, the president, Uhuru Kenyatta, was indicted by the ICC on charges that included crimes against humanity. And this was in connection with post-election ethnic violence in the country in 2007 to 2008, in which it's estimated about 1,200 people died. Now, the ICC dropped the charges against Uhuru Kenyatta in December 2014. And this is how some of the victims of that violence reacted when those charges were dropped against President Kenyatta. I was very bitter on learning that the case has been terminated. We were hoping that we would get assistance from the ICC. Where is that assistance? All through, we had hoped the ICC could help us. We now have no hope and it's better to die. Why have we, as victims, never received an opportunity to testify? We know what happened and therefore have the first-hand account of what transpired. The ICC is the worst institution ever. Now that this case has been terminated, we should just be left alone and you should never call us for another meeting. And that's written testimony, obviously, that we've voiced up. Now, the obvious point here is that uh, there is clearly a sign of justice in action and that people should be both convicted and acquitted, as we've said. But there were many aspects of how the ICC handled this particular case that caused disquiet. Maina Kiai is a Kenyan lawyer and human rights activist who's now at City University, New York. He outlined what had gone wrong with the ICC's handling of the case in Kenya. I think the ICC's approach was all wrong. Instead of gathering all the evidence at one go, as much as they could at the beginning, they were gathering evidence step by step. And I think what they were trying to do at the prosecutorial level was try to get Kenya to implement domestic procedures for accountability. And the second thing is that they underestimated the resolve of powerful people to get away with murder. 
they really underestimated that. And I think if you look at how the ICC has worked, by focusing on Africa, they thought that these were low-hanging fruits. But they underestimated Africans and the, and the determination of people who are in power to continuously stay in power and subvert them. And I think the, the other thing that went wrong is that the state of Kenya, once it came to the point where they are, they are, they are now dealing with people who are part of the government, the state was unable to, to cooperate fully. When ICC said they were coming in, there was massive popular support for the International Criminal Court in Kenya. Then when they named the people who are going to be indicted, the suspects, first of all, there was, first of all, support and shock that, my goodness, they have named powerful people. But as the time went, then the support started fading, but fading on the basis of ethnicity. There's one part that the ICC did really badly, and that is dealing with victims and witnesses. And that's the core of it. And when you deal with victims and potential witnesses in a way that makes them uncomfortable, they treated potential witnesses like refugees as opposed to witnesses. They're just not prepared for this at all. And I think... I think the ICC was really treating these issues very lightly. So what are the lessons to be learned for the ICC, do you think? You see, it's easy for the ICC, it's relatively easier rather, for the ICC to to prosecute rebels or, or those who are in the opposition because the state will then cooperate with the ICC. But for those who have power in the, within the state, that's a different proposition entirely. So one of the biggest lessons, I think, is that first, look, If you're going to deal with this, with a case of somebody who is in power, for crying out loud, do your homework properly. Make sure you allocate as much evidence as you can, and then you move it. The second thing you've got to do, if if you've got suspects and you're indicting people, please put them in pre-trial detention. This idea of having summons to appear that can come in and go back to their countries and stir the pot and create intimidation and fear with rallies and meetings and political support, that's one of the things that made things go wrong in Kenya. And I think the third lesson is that you've got to, the ICC needs to also find cases that can bring, in a sense, the fear factor back. And, you know, right right now in Africa, in most of Africa, most of the leadership doesn't fear the ICC. So how do you bring back the fear factor? You've got to go for states that are powerful. People say, wow, the ICC is gone for, you know, for the United Kingdom or for France, country that's powerful and big. But if you keep going for Central African Republic, you're going to go for DR Congo, you're going, you know, this other, this, and then and Kenya then shows that you can get away with it. The ICC is going to be a doomed institution. Lawyer Minor Kiai. Uh, Meg de Goodsman, do you recognise those criticisms and do you think some of those lessons may have been learned? You know, I think some of those criticisms are valid. I also think we have to keep in mind the incredibly challenging agenda of trying to prosecute the most responsible people for these kind of grave crimes. But aren't some of those those points pretty basic? The idea that you have to do your homework, as he put it, gather your evidence properly. That, That seems pretty basic to me. I think what he didn't mention is that there was significant interference with the witnesses, with the evidence, tampering with the evidence, on the part of the Kenyan government that contributed significantly, as I understand it, to the case cases falling apart. So, yes, I think that with the benefit of hindsight, we might say it would have been nice had the prosecutor done more legwork before bringing the cases. At the same time, they were facing defendants who were in positions of power and were able to undermine their efforts. John Bellinger, if there is this allegation of, of some level of incompetence, doesn't it play into the kind of narrative that you would hear very commonly in the United States that a court like this simply can't 
enact justice or see through the process of justice any better than a, a national court would be able to, and it's best left in a, in a national court. Certainly for the critics of the International Criminal Court in the United States, including John Bolton, who's now national security advisor in the Trump administration, these concerns are really just the proof that the court itself is not effective and that we should be doing regional justice instead of having some big court. I personally think that the court does try to do too much. It is become a something of a super court trying to look at too many situations around the world. It was, of course, set up originally only to investigate and prosecute the crimes of the greatest gravity. And unfortunately, there are a lot of bad things that happen all around the world. But the court has ended up spreading itself extremely thin and is now investigating the new crime of aggression that was added to its mandate a few years ago. And so as a result, it is not living up to the expectations of people who think that it will bring justice everywhere in the world. Kandel, the other point that was raised by Maina Kiai was this failure to protect victims. That presumably has a, a, an enormous effect on how the court is perceived and trust in the court. I think that's right. I mean, in the in the Kenya case, you know, the court faced a number of challenges. You know, the biggest challenge that the court faced, and I think Meg touched on this, is the challenge of trying to prosecute a sitting head of state. So this would have been the very first time, not the first time that a charge was made against a head of state, but the first time that somebody would continue to be head of state and actually be tried at the same time before an international criminal court or an international criminal tribunal. So that is hugely complicated because that leads to this possibility of, well, first of all, it assures that there there won't really be cooperation by the the government that that person heads. It leads to the possibility of of witness tampering. Um, It leads to the possibility of intimidation. And it is that which then puts an imperative on the court to gather as much evidence as possible probably as much as they actually need to get the case over the line before they bring the charge in the first place. Because once you bring the charge against somebody who's going to continue to be head of state, then from that point on, cooperation is going to stop. So just to go back to the broader point, I think the court does actually have a very, very difficult line to walk here. Because as as John says, the mandate is to prosecute you know, the most grave crimes, which suggest that we should be going right to the very top of the chain of responsibility. But at the same time, the court needs to get some wins on the board. The court needs to be able to know how it's going to operate. And so perhaps the difficulty is starting at the very top in a case like Kenya, in the sense that actually wanting to bring cases against the head of state. And maybe, and maybe this is in hindsight, it would actually have been better for the court to sort of get its legs well established by prosecuting maybe more mid-level officials before actually bringing these cases against the leaders who are right at the very top. You're welcome to come back on some of those points, but I also wonder whether lack of resources is a problem for the court. Can it afford to do this great agenda, this huge agenda that it's set itself or it has been set? I think that is a huge problem for the court. It has not been given the resources, the financial resources, or the support that it would need to have the ability to prosecute large numbers of crimes around the world. And this, I think, points to probably the 
fundamental issue, in my view, um, about these legitimacy challenges, which is the mismatch between the expectations that are put on the court um, around the world and the capacity that the court has. And, and I think this relates to the question of what can the court really and realistically do for victims. It's heartbreaking to hear the victims talking about how disappointed they were and how difficult it was to see those cases fail. And I think that the court really needs to be careful about the expectations it raises, particularly in the minds of victims, because it has just very limited ability. Its capacity is basically to bring a small number of exemplary prosecutions, not to satisfy the needs for justice of large numbers of victims. If I can come back on that, because I think this really is a key point concern that many people have, which is to set expectations all around the world too high, that it is a court that can do justice in any country against any level of official if there have been deaths or atrocities of any number. And that, at least in my view and I think the views of many, was not the purpose of the court. The purpose of the court really was to be a sort of a successor of the Nuremberg and Japanese war crimes tribunal set up after World War II. And so it really ought to be focusing on cases where you know, sadly, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people are killed where it has in fact been looking either through investigations or even prosecutions cases where it may be really just a few dozen people and these are very, very sad cases. Uh, but when people around the world and particularly victims in, in these African countries believe that the court is there for them in all of these cases, of course, it is going to fail and then people lose confidence. So very briefly. I'd like to disagree a little bit there if you don't mind. I really don't think that the court was set up to try cases that have to involve huge numbers of victims. I think that is an expectation that, that some people have of the court. But I think that that also is a misplaced expectation. If the court is really only able to try a few exemplary prosecutions a year, it should focus on sending important messages to the world. So it has prosecuted, for example, crimes involving the destruction of cultural property. And I think that's actually an important thing for it to do. We need to wrap up this half hour. But before we do, Meg de Guzman, one more thought then that is very much related to what we've just been talking about. It is, you know, just over 20 years since the court was established. Is this the moment to reassess that, to, to relook at how the role of the court is perceived? Absolutely. I think supporters of the court, the global community generally, should really try to develop a more refined mandate for the court so that the court has more guidance about how to select cases, how to allocate resources. I think that's one of the fundamental problems that it faces. And the more work can be done to solve that, the better um, prospects the court has for the future. And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service, this week looking at the International Criminal Court. Each week we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. There are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. Do please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. Email us, therealstory at bbc.co.uk.
But now let's get back to this edition of the programme with me, Rithullah Shah, looking at the workings of the International Criminal Court. And my guests, John Bellinger, an international law expert who served as a legal advisor to the State Department during the Bush administration, Dapo Akande, a professor of public international law at the University of Oxford, and Meg de Guzman, a professor of law and co-director at the Institute for International Law and Public Policy, who's in Philadelphia. Welcome to you all. We talked in the first half about the setup of the court, and it's workings. But law doesn't exist in a vacuum. The backdrop is politics, and this has a really profound effect on the workings of the court. Let's begin by thinking a little bit more about who backs it and who no longer supports it. Let's take the case of South Africa. In October 2016, South Africa, along with Burundi, became the second African state to begin the process of leaving the court. Burundi, which faces an investigation, did up sticks and leave. South Africa hasn't actually done that yet, but it has taken steps to enable a withdrawal. Michael Masutha has been Justice Minister in South Africa since 2014. He told us why, first of all, South Africa had played such a large part in supporting the formation of the court. Because we do not believe in impunity, Because we do not believe in impunity and we believe in the rule of law and multilateralism. South Africa in 2015 was in a fortunate position of being assigned the privilege to host the African Union Summit. That meant that we had to host virtually all the members of the AU, which included Sudan. And we believe that persons who attend such an event were fully immune from any possible criminal liability under the system of diplomatic immunity. However, our court later confirmed that the warrant that had been issued by the ICC against President al-Bashir of Sudan was valid and enforceable, and it became apparent to us that the interpretation that was being given to the Rome Statute was problematic and could affect our ability to prosecute our diplomatic policies. It is for that reason that we asked the Assembly of State Parties to provide clarity, either by amending the statutes to make it clear whether the principle of diplomatic immunity still applied, and if it doesn't, according to the majority view, we would then have to exercise our options. Because we believe that in promoting peace, you may need to hold back enforcing the rights of victims and seeking justice for them, and make some kind of compromise in order to create an environment so that human rights and justice can find a better chance. I do know that at the time President al-Bashir visited South Africa, Sudan was on the path of securing peace and South Africa was playing an active role in supporting that peace effort. But for us, the principle really is that where you have conflicts and there are efforts to secure peace, you first have to give peace a chance and everything else can then follow. Approximately two years ago, the African National Congress decided that indeed South Africa should withdraw from the ICC for the reason I have already stated and other considerations such as the selective nature in which the ICC itself has sought to stamp out impunity in the world, not pursuing the more powerful nations who have caused mayhem in the world. And I was instructed to introduce legislation to substitute a domestic law that would effectively enable us to prosecute any person guilty of atrocities, whether they perpetrated them here or anywhere else in the world. In other words, to extend territorial jurisdiction beyond our borders in such matters. Unfortunately, Parliament is closed now and we're going into elections, but it will certainly be a matter that will continue to be before Parliament unless and until the ruling party post-elections decides otherwise. 
We believe that we have a contribution to make on the global stage in promoting the ideals that the Rome Statute was created for, and it will be a pity if we find ourselves unable to sustain our membership because of the practical difficulties that the Statute presents. We hope that the judicial interventions might provide some respite. That's Michael Masutha, the South African Justice Minister. Megda Guzman, South Africa is an interesting country to have found itself at odds with the ICC. What do you think it tells us about the way the ICC has worked? Well, I think the Justice Minister is on to an important issue that the ICC has jurisdiction over heads of state, but that runs up against a question of immunity under customary international law outside the court. And this has been a matter of ongoing litigation at the ICC. I think if these states are committed to ending impunity for the most serious crimes, they can't support immunity for heads of state for these kinds of crimes. So when the African Union adopted the Malibu Protocol to create a regional African criminal court and inserted head of state and other governmental official immunity, I think that was a real mistake. At the same time, I agree with the minister that under some circumstances, it makes sense to sequence peace and justice. Dapo Kande, I wonder what you make about this question of whether sitting heads of state are immune. That is and continues to be a tricky legal question before the court. And South Africa was somewhat caught within two stools there. I say somewhat because South Africa was aware that this was an issue and they chose to host this summit and they chose to invite the Sudanese president. They did not actually need to put themselves in that position. On peace and justice, I agree with the point Meg made. I think that there might be some circumstances where if local actors express a desire for peace or express a desire for having some alternative form of justice there might be circumstances where international criminal justice should not be pursued or at least should not be pursued at that time. But that was not the issue facing South Africa at that point in time. The third issue, the issue of targeting African countries. Again, I'm not quite sure that that was the issue that was facing South Africa at that point in time. Is the case of Omar al-Bashir a particularly tricky one? Because, of course, Sudan isn't a member of the ICC, but yet he was travelling to countries that were. So this is exactly what makes the al-Bashir case tricky. So not only is it a case of the attempt to prosecute a sitting head of state. It's an attempt to prosecute a sitting head of a state that is not a party to the treaty that set up the International Criminal Court. How did the case come to the ICC? It came because the United Nations Security Council referred the situation in Darfur, Sudan, to the ICC. So the legal issue that presented itself was essentially whether, given this referral from the Security Council, whether all the provisions in the statute of the court, including those provisions which remove immunity, apply to Sudan, despite the fact that Sudan is not a party to the court. And this is a question which urgently needs attention from the court. And actually, there are proceedings before the appeals chamber of the ICC. We're still waiting for an answer. Is there any idea when we'll know? We don't know when we will know. I think I should say that actually the court has given an answer in the past on this question. It's just that it has given inconsistent answers in the past. So we're waiting, if you like, for a definitive ruling. John Bellinger, once again, the arguments that South Africa makes presumably find resonance in the US. 
For the United States government, historically, the concern has really been less issues of immunity of individuals, although that is certainly an important legal point. But there's also the concern that both NAPO and Meg have raised about does the court actually interfere with the efforts of the international community and of the United States to bring about peace in a particular region. But to be clear, those tend to be secondary concerns to what have been the major consistent concern of the United States and now most forcefully in the Trump administration that a uncontrolled, unfettered prosecutor may conduct unnecessary and politicized investigations of the United States or of its allies like the United Kingdom. And are there examples, I was about to say, are there examples that support that concern? So for the first 10 years or so, no. But in the last few years, for whatever reason, maybe because of things that these countries have done, but maybe because of the enormous pressure on the prosecutor from African countries that she should be focusing on other bigger Western countries rather just on Africa, there have been in the last three years preliminary examinations that the court has undertaken of the United Kingdom's actions in Iraq of Israel's actions with respect to the Turkish flotilla about seven years ago and of U.S. actions in Afghanistan. And those investigations, obviously primarily the investigation of the United States and its military in Afghanistan, have really provoked U.S. anger towards the court. And that's why the Trump administration has come down particularly violently towards the court and the prosecutor. But of course, you can argue that if the court is to be credible throughout the world, it's got to be seen to be challenging some of the more powerful countries as well. And it has also taken on the Afghan government, the Taliban. There's, there's, there's a wide range of cases. Absolutely. It cannot shy away from the bigger countries. I think this gets back to a point I made earlier, though, that the court really is not just a super court to review the actions of individual countries that may not have fully investigated something. It is there to focus really on the gravest crimes. So, yes, the British soldiers may have committed offenses in Iraq. U.S. forces may have committed some offenses in Afghanistan. But there have been full investigations of all of these. And I think it's hard for really anybody to say that these are the gravest crimes of the sort that the International Criminal Court was set up to investigate. I would love to jump in there because I'm actually about to publish a book on the concept of gravity and how it relates to all of these issues. And I really don't think that there's consensus that gravity means the crimes that yield the highest numbers of victims. I think the crimes that are committed by nationals of the most powerful states can in fact be among the gravest. And I think it's important to draw attention to the fact that there was a debate in Rome when the statute of the ICC was drafted about whether the court should only have jurisdiction over war crimes when they're committed on a widespread or systematic basis. And the decision was made, no, the court does have jurisdiction over even small-scale war crimes. And when those crimes are committed by people from powerful countries, I think it's important for the court to send a message that power should not be abused in that way. But isn't there a more sort of prosaic argument going on here? The court is a creation of its member states. It needs to keep all of its member states on side. And that means balancing the powerful members against those that perhaps 
are not don't perceive themselves as 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 powerful, and that's a difficulty of just operating in in a multilateral organisation. Dapo. Yeah, and I think that's partly right. Partly because I think it's impossible for the court to keep all the states happy all the time, and part of the point of having a court that's able to prosecute not just leaders of non-state groups, but also state leaders, is that there will be times when states will be unhappy with the court. But I actually don't think that it's necessarily the case that the court has to keep the most powerful states happy all the time. I think that if, for example, the court had not opened investigations out of Africa, I think that that would actually have been more disastrous for the court because the largest single grouping of states' parties to the International Criminal Court are African states, And these states, as a bloc, were threatening to withdraw. I think if that had happened, that would have been a huge disaster for the court. I want to bring in one more example, that of the Philippines. Now, in March, the Philippines became the second country to pull out of the ICC. It announced its intention to leave after the ICC opened an examination looking into accusations that President Duterte and other Philippines officials committed mass murder amounting to crimes against humanity in the course of the drugs crackdown. There was a petition at the Philippines Supreme Court to halt the withdrawal, but the court refused to rule against the government. The government says its own courts are perfectly capable of taking on such cases. Barry Gutierrez is a human rights lawyer and a member of the Philippines Congress from the opposition Akbayan Citizens Action Party. If you go by the lowest figures, that's the police figures, uh, there are at least 5,000 people that have been killed since 2016. But if you look at the number of investigations actually conducted by the police and other law enforcement authorities, as of, I think, two months ago, it was just at 76 That's a very, very clear indicator that the uh, Philippine authorities are either unable or more likely unwilling to actually undertake a serious inquiry in connection with all these deaths arising in the course of the drug war. Now, you worked for many years to get the Philippines into the ICC. The country's now withdrawn. What impact do you think that will have then on any possible investigation? Legally, there is really no effect, considering that the allegations all took place while the Philippines was still a member. But definitely, you know, a withdrawal of the ICC system, it's really a very, very demoralizing uh, blow, and there will be effects in the future. One of the reasons why we wanted the Philippines to join the ICC in the first place is to have a fallback. We have had a long history of local courts being unable to actually provide justice to victims. After all, we had the experience under the Marcos dictatorship. We had a uh, ton of extrajudicial killings that happened under the Arroyo administration in the early 2000s. We really wanted access to a fallback mechanism in case uh, Philippine courts, as they have done in the past, But could it be the fact that the decision by the ICC to begin even these preliminary investigations might well have been the thing that uh, persuaded President Duterte that it was time to get out? It might have been the trigger, but I think that regardless of whether we would file before the ICC or not, President Duterte and officials in this administration have always been wary of any legal process that would enable them to be held to account. And I think that he just seized upon the announcement of a preliminary examination so that he could have at least an excuse to avoid any accountability before the International Criminal Court. It's a matter of self-preservation. It's very clear that this is one person attempting to avoid possible prosecution. It is not 
a legitimate effort by a member uh, state to raise concerns about the efficacy or the fairness of the ICC, but rather something very, very personal to uh, the person currently uh, sitting as president of the Philippines. That's Barry Gutierrez, a human rights lawyer and a member of the opposition in the Philippines. John Bellinger, does the fact that the Philippines chose to pull out show that the court does actually provide a sense of threat, a sense of uh, there will be no impunity? Well, it's certainly threatening to some countries. And the Philippines is, I think, a borderline case here because the offenses, likely crimes, are heinous. They need to be investigated. There should not be impunity for them. But this gets to really the whole issue that we're talking about right now is, is the International Criminal Court a panacea for all bad actions around the world. Are these crimes against humanity? There's certainly thousands of murders and very bad offenses. But is this really what the International Criminal Court was set up to do? It's a close call. But if the court looks at all of these bad actions at 190 countries around the world, it will collapse of its own weight. And we're beginning to see some of that already. That's why I keep getting back to the point that the ICC has perhaps promised too much to too many people and as a result has begun to struggle because it is trying to do too much. Dapo Kande, this is the tension we've come back to over and over again during the course of the discussion. Is this an example of overreach or perhaps that the court reacts too quickly and then actually can't follow through? So this is a case where, as we heard there, there are thousands, undoubtedly, thousands of extrajudicial killings and if the facts are alleged are true, this would amount to crimes against humanity. You know, this would be widespread and systematic attack on a civilian population. So in my view, this is the sort of thing that the court is called upon to do. The question is whether the court can do this everywhere. In all the cases where crimes against humanity occur, war crimes occur, genocide occurs, So I disagree with John in one respect and I agree with him in another. I disagree with him in the sense that I don't think it's right to say that the court is looking at every bad thing everywhere. These are specific types of crimes, the three or four types that we have mentioned. But I agree with him that this is going on in a lot of places around the world and the court, the ICC, can't investigate and prosecute everywhere. So the court needs a smart strategy for choosing those cases where it will investigate and for choosing those cases where it won't. And it needs a strategy that takes into account the resources that it has. And the Philippines might well be a very good case. At the moment, it's not quite clear what that prosecutorial strategy is for choosing which situations. Meg de Guzman, it is a massive remit, isn't it? I want to make sure that the distinction between preliminary examination and investigation is clear. What the court has done in a number of these cases is to open what it calls preliminary examinations. That does not mean that it has a full investigation going. I think that alone sends an important signal to bad actors around the world that, you know, the world is paying attention through the ICC to what's going on. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the ICC will open a full investigation and bring cases in the situation. So although I agree that there's a potential problem of spreading the resources too thin, it may be a legitimate strategy to open preliminary examinations whenever 
crimes against humanity and important war crimes and so on have been committed, and then to be more strategic about where to invest the resources for a full investigation and opening cases. John Bellinger, given your concerns about what the ICC should or shouldn't do, if you're going to accept there is a place in international law for work like this, for prosecutions like this, should there be more hybrid tribunals, something smaller for a specific instance that's set up and then goes away? Well, perhaps so. And to be clear, I led the Bush administration's efforts in the second term to adopt essentially a conciliatory, constructive approach with the International Criminal Court, contrary to the more hostile approach that John Bolton had taken in the first term because I did think and I think many in the United States think and the polling has shown historically that there is a place for an international criminal court to try, investigate and try the most serious crimes. Our Congress passed resolutions back in the 1990s calling for the creation of an international criminal court provided that it was reserved for the most serious crimes and protected due process. So I personally think, as I think many in the United States think, that a appropriate international criminal court, that there is an important role because there just are no other alternatives. In some cases though, and this is your question, there may be some alternatives. Rather than having the international criminal court try to address every issue everywhere, leave it to regions, set up ad hoc tribunals to police things regionally so that there is not impunity but that the International Criminal Court is really reserved for what it was set up to do originally as essentially an heir to the Nuremberg tribunals. Meg, you're working on that African Regional Court. I mean, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I agree with John. I think that those regional courts in the future are likely to play an important role. I think it may be a somewhat distant future because there isn't the support at the moment, and particularly in our era of anti-globalism, there isn't likely to be the support in the near future for putting resources into these kinds of mechanisms. But I do think that eventually we're likely to see regional courts emerging. There's a regional court being discussed for Latin America and the Caribbean to deal with trafficking crimes. There's the example of the special court set up in the courts of Senegal to try Hissène Habre. And what's interesting about that in particular is that it was set up in conjunction with the African Union. So it was a regional organization helping to set up a special court to exercise essentially universal jurisdiction within Senegal. I think we're likely to see more of those mechanisms, and I think that's a good thing. As the ICC mandate becomes clearer and more narrow, those institutions hopefully will be able to assist in the broader agenda of stopping impunity for these kinds of crimes. Dapo Kande, if the ICC is to survive, is it going to be with an acceptance of its limitations? So it may never be able to hold sitting leaders accountable. It will have to think about how it approaches powerful countries Is that the context in which it'll have to operate? Perhaps. Well, can I start by maybe saying something that relates to the points that both John and Meg have just been making about the relationship between the ICC and other institutions? So I think that it would not be right to assess the success or the failure of the ICC without taking into account the impact that the creation of the ICC and the operations of the ICC have had on other institutions One of the fundamental principles of the ICC is this principle of complementarity, the idea that the ICC will only prosecute these crimes in cases where domestic systems have failed to do so. 
And the fact that we had the ICC and the fact that at the time when the court was first created, many, many countries started to adopt domestic legislation providing for domestic prosecution of these international crimes has actually been hugely significant. It has kept the flame of international criminal justice alive. And I think that is in large measure due to the ICC. So we look at you know, what the court as an institution has done. And we say, well, maybe the court as an institution hasn't quite done what we expected it to do. However, the ideals of the court have actually flowed through into domestic systems, into regional systems, even into what the UN Security Council continues to say and do about international criminal justice. So I think it's important to take all of that into account. To come back to your specific question, I think we have to be realistic and there will be times when states will support the court. There will be times when they won't support the court. That's one of the advantages, hopefully, of a permanent institution. It's going through a bad time now. But even if you look at U.S. support, as John indicates, when he was in government, they did support the ICC. Maybe there will come a time when the U.S. government might at least give some support to the ICC. Which brings me very neatly to my final thought. Do you believe, Dapo, then, that the court will survive for another 20 years? I hope it will, and I think it will. Meg Guzman? Absolutely. I think the court has been part of an important process of evolution of international norms about accountability for crimes. And I think that that norm is very strong now, as Dapo points out, not just at the international level, but increasingly there are cases in national courts, laws are being changed, and even the exercise of universal jurisdiction, we're seeing this with regard to Syria. All of this, I think, is part of the same movement for global justice that the court is perhaps a centerpiece of. John Bellinger. I think it will survive, but I think it is going to have to look back and slim back its missions or it will collapse under its own weight. Well, there's an interesting thought to end on. That's it for this week on The Real Story. Thank you very much to our guests, John Bellinger, Meg de Guzman and Dapo Kande. From me and the whole team, that's The Real Story for this week. Thank you for listening.